and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Vasca, and today, just in time for Thanksgiving, we are going to answer the question, what does the proper care of animals have to do with your health? The answer is everything. Discussing this with me is Los Angeles-based chef and independent farm enthusiast, Katie Watson, and we are talking about the book Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron Foer and the documentary of the same name directed by Christopher Quinn. I'm actually going to open the conversation with a question I didn't write down, but that I'm curious about. What are you doing for Thanksgiving? For Thanksgiving, I am cooking for other people this year. Typically, Thanksgiving is my all-time favorite holiday for obvious food-inclined reasons, but it also speaks to me in why I like cooking for personal reasons as far as I have always loved having people around my table. And it just is an excitement to me that I get to be the one to cook or like the reason that it, that brings people together is the food. It's also, you get to meet new people usually. Friends bring friends. I always am like, we'll add extra tables. We'll put the extension on the dining room table. Like bring whomever doesn't have somewhere to go or somewhere to be. So this year has been not able to do that. So I kind of was like, well, if I can't have that kind of Thanksgiving, then I'll just make food for other people. It'll be a weird one, but we'll see. Yeah, I'd have to imagine it'll be very strange to... Yeah, like when I think Thanksgiving, it's not something that I imagine putting your beautiful turkey into an aluminum disposable container and like dropping it off for somebody. I was like, that is very weird to me, but that's just how it has to be this year. It's just, I don't know. It's going to be weird, but I guess it's like you can stockpile all of the what you hoped for 2020, hopefully into 2021. And we can (laughs) all gather safely next year. I mean, the one thing that I'm grateful I can still do for Thanksgiving this year is even though I can't physically be at my favorite farm restaurant, that's Mm -hmm. sort of out in the middle of nowhere, I can actually pick up my Thanksgiving dinner to go from there. Yes. And that makes me very happy. I mean, granted, I have to pick it up a day in advance and I have to reheat it. And yeah, that's not ideal, but I'll take it because I don't want to make it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there's, I mean, there's lots of people who are like, could you just make the turkey? I can do everything else. Or it just, I'm just filling in for where people don't feel comfortable to do it. But I mean, I think that that's very important. And I think that kind of bleeding into the conversation that we're approaching comes into what people are realizing they need to do to help small restaurants and businesses that they care about stay alive and stay functioning is that you make those choices. And you choose to yeah, even though it's a little bit inconvenient to you, maybe if you ordered at Whole Foods, you could pick up hot and ready to go the day of Thanksgiving, but instead you choose to support a business that you love and want to see continue to function for the future. And I think that that, again, it's like, it's all about choice for me. It's where you decide to vote with your money and what is important to you. Yeah. And to be very honest, it's actually no different as a price point around here at all. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Some places in the country, I think it is a very different price point, but we're very lucky here that most of the farm collectives that you can be a part of are not going to price you out of the market because everybody is pricing you out of the market. (laughs) Well, especially now, those places are wanting to stay competitive because they want you to be making that decision that you are making. Otherwise, people will just not have turkey or not or just do something non-traditional, just like ordering Chinese food. It's like, we, we need them to buy this. I thought that was a good place to kind of start with the conversation. And what I think is interesting is to talk through some of the sort of personal ideas and personal story about food, which is what I love about Jonathan Saffron Foer's book, is that he's so deeply intentional about talking about the way that we tell our stories through food. Yes. 
Well, and I love the reason why he chose to dig into that research was just simply because he was about to have a baby. Yeah. And he and that was it. And he was like, wow, this has changed all of my perspective. And it's it's narrowed my focus into I can't just be ambivalent. I have to tell someone who who I'm responsible for why I'm making the choices that I'm making, not only for myself, but for them too. Because it even starts at the beginning saying he and his wife are pseudo vegetarian, sometimes mm-hmm. vegan, every now and then they'd have a craving for a hamburger. And he was like, is that okay? I want to be more responsible for my choices. And he went obviously like very far, but he approached it from a writer's perspective, which is like, I have to have every source of information I possibly can have and assemble all of that and then digest it down into an incredible book. It's not one that many people can take but it's one that's extremely important. It is extremely important. And I'm completely, I mean, I was in love with Saffron Foer before. Yeah. Because of everything is illuminated. But reading this book, I just fell in love with him all over again. Yeah. And watching the documentary that accompanies it as well was heartbreaking. And it's not that there's a lot of information in there well, there is some, there is certainly a fair degree of information in there that I was unaware of. And I am really shocked by a lot of the things that he's able to articulate about what exactly is wrong with the factory farming system. Mm-hmm. But I was vegetarian for 11 years and I knew a lot about what was going on. But for health reasons, I was told that I had to go back to eating animal protein. Mm. And I, it's funny because I had a very deeply personal connection to everything that was being said, particularly in the beginning of the book, but all throughout, it felt deeply personal. He addresses it in a way that you feel like you're having a very intense and in-depth conversation with a friend, that he is someone who is not standing on a soapbox and screaming at you. He is merely trying to open your eyes and educate. And while he's learning, he wants you to also learn. And that's what I really love about this book. Yeah. And that he's very forthright about the fact that he did not expect what he came to find out. Well, you don't, <laughs> you don't want to expect what the reality is of a factory farm. There is nothing good about it. And I think that that's a lot of the reason that when people... They shy away from even the documentaries, but it's, I think that that is what people get scared of is it's, I mean, you, you feel almost sometimes that you need a degree just to learn what eggs you should be buying or what milk you should be buying or why you shouldn't buy that really cheap beef tenderloin at Costco. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, what's the difference? It says it's prime and that's a USDA like stamp on it. That means it's good. Then I'm safe. And what a deal. And it's, it's way more difficult to know the reality behind and the traceability or lack thereof for that piece of beef or milk or what is in those eggs, really. And most people are very happy to consume in ignorance because it's cheap. People have a lot of stuff to worry about. And it's like, the last thing I want to worry about is now I have to go to six different supermarkets or three farmers markets a week, as opposed to I can go to one store get everything I need, and I'm done. And like that's all I have time for. I will confess, I am very much that person who now in the middle of the pandemic, I do my Instacart orders for the sure. week just because I have no ability to be out amongst the people. I'm very dependent on this direct-to-me system. Yeah, the main reason I... I would love to be able to do Instacart and have those grocery deliveries. But my issue so often is unless you have a really good shopper who's very communicative, if I order a whole chicken and I specify this particular brand is the only one that I will eat. And they're like, oh, I just decided to sub yeah, no. you know, this Tyson. It was on sale, saved you $17. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't want it then. It's definitely those things. I was like, I won't even feed that meat to my dog. So I don't want to pay for it. I've had those situations happen myself. It's very common. But when you get the really good shoppers, it's amazing. It makes you want to use those 
apps way more often, at least yeah. for me. I've had one really, really amazing shopper. I think of all the, at the very beginning of lockdowns and everything else, we did a couple of those orders for what you could get. She would message me and be like, someone literally just stole the last one. This is what they have. Which would you prefer? And it was like, oh, this is amazing. But those are few and far between. So when you think about what is there in the grocery store, it's incredible how our perceptions of what is even necessity these days has changed so much Mm -hmm. in the middle of the pandemic. For a while, our perceptions changed and it was, okay, meat is hard to get, so we'll only be eating meat like once a week. But now it's very much gone back to, all right, meet three times a day. We will expect to have everything that we want delivered to us in this particular way at this particular time. And I think all of that goes back to the 1970s. And what I really think is interesting about Jonathan Saffron Foer's definition or lack of definition of factory farming is that he talks about it as being Hard to define, yet you know it when you see it. Which is also how, like, the way that we got that phrase is from pornography. Pornography. (laughs) Which cracks me up because (laughs) I I feel like there are reasons for people to not want to know or to not be able to define them for, I don't know, like, for very similar reasons in that it's like it can come in many shapes and forms. And it is also going to trigger Mm -hmm. a reaction that is... Very visceral. Right. Like at first I was going to say, because they're both like kind of dirty, ugly things. But to me, I'm not going to like paint pornography. Well, don't. With that broad of a brush. Because honestly, I would, (laughs) if you made me just sit in a room and be like, you're going to watch pornography for three hours, or you're going to watch these videos of factory farms for three hours, I would probably choose porn. I would always choose porn in that scenario. Which is like... (laughs) That alone, to me, says volumes. And I guarantee that even with, uh, I come from a very, very conservative background. I am no longer conservative, but my family is. And I guarantee you that they, I mean, they would be a, a difficult choice for them to make. And yet they are also the ones who are like, I got, you know, a 12 pack of these hot dogs for 39 cents at Walmart. This is great. Best day ever. And they're fine with that. Not knowing. And I think that pornography is less easy to define than a factory farm, just simply because there is such a vast difference in seeing an independent and biodiverse landscape than when you crest a hill or even smell it before you see it. This just, it's crazy that it's called a plant because it couldn't be anything further from something that is life-giving. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> it, it really is. Uh when you talk about the things that go on in these plants, you've got the genetic modification of animals that's going on, the way that they stuff the animals with antibiotics. Even before you get down to the treatment of the animals, you've already done so much to the animal to the point where there is no such thing as animal behavior anymore. No, because if you looked at the behavior of a chicken in a factory farm versus the behavior of a grass-fed, free-range foraging chicken. It's not even comparable. They have no concept of how to have sex. They have no concept of how to do anything other than sit there and be essentially just stupid and there for the slaughter. Yeah, which is heartbreaking. Just, uh, I, I feel, I'm a firm believer that they would just, especially when you see cow factory farms, to me, those are some of the most heartbreaking, just simply because the cows are so big, that they can't really keep them inside of a building, because Mm -hmm. the building would have to be that big, too. So the only reason that that cow has access to the outside, which is not grass, it's just a big dirt field that then becomes a cow manure field, is that because they just can't afford to make a building that's big enough to house them and cows are pretty durable. So they're like, oh, if it rains or snows or whatever, they're going to be fine. And the cows are out there just look so bored. They they have nothing except what they can see, which is typically a highway. Mm-hmm. And it's heartbreaking. 
It really is. I spent a lot of time when I was growing up in Colorado where they have free range laws. And so Mm -hmm. our neighbor's cows were constantly coming onto our property. And I felt threatened by the cows (laughs) on more than one occasion. And I would have like my moments where I was, I hate the cows, I hate (laughs) the cows. And I would never wish any such conditions on any cow. Right. In any form or fashion, especially when you get to know them, because they actually are is however you want to look at animals and whatever your personal feelings are about animals. Jonathan Safran Foer gets into this a lot in the book. It's very interesting once you develop a relationship with an animal or even just an animal as a part of a species. It's a life-changing experience where you suddenly realize, okay, not only is there sentience there, but there is intelligence there. And part of the whole reason that nature and these species have continued to exist for so long is that they know where to go for the most nutritious foods and so forth that continue the cycle of life. And they have this innate knowledge about what is best for them and their bodies. Right. There is an ecosystem when the animals are allowed to cohabitate. And Joel Salatin is this incredible farmer on the East Coast. I believe he's in Virginia. He was obviously not one of the first people, but he is a farmer who's had some accolades and some um, press about just his frustration with factory farms. He has, I think, 80 acres on the one that he has, and he grows and raises not only animals, but also produce, vegetables and fruits and things like that. And he explains all the time where he's like, he let the cows go in first, they graze the pasture, they then push the chickens through the chickens, then like, pick rubs and things that would make the cows sick if they got into the grass and they eat those. And then you have the pigs come through and they rough up the soil and it, it all boils back down to like that nitrogen footprint that how much is being released into the atmosphere as well as how much is being contained in that soil. And it's a much more natural flow. And it's something that is completely being pushed to the wayside with something like a factory farm, because yeah, if the cows were forced to continuously eat the same pasture and they were never moved, it's going to be a mud pit at some point because Mm -hmm. that grass has no time or energy or seed to continuously grow back. And again, the chickens go through and eat anything parasitic or grub wise that comes out of that cow. So the cow is not then reintroducing that back into their system. So the Mm -hmm. cow doesn't then need those antibiotics that you're pushing into them. They don't need the growth steroids because they're not being forced to hit certain growth charts at such an expedited rate. And we're just, we're taking the natural element out of nature when you try to do what these people are doing. It's interesting because this also ties into another documentary I've watched recently. I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, Gather. Um, I've seen, oh, I have almost watched it actually. Okay. Okay. But yes, I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. I highly recommend it. But one of the points that it makes is that there was also, because of the deliberate genocide waged against Native Americans in this country, and the way that they attempted to starve out the Native Americans by killing off the buffalo as their mm. food source, that buffalo meat is actually one of the most natural sources of animal protein as well, that there are now scientific studies, including by one of the young women who's featured in the film, linking buffalo meat to prevention of diabetes and is a possible explanation for why it is that Native American communities, which have been so divorced from indigenous foods, are at higher risk of things like obesity and disease. And it's again, like, when you separate a people from their natural ecosystem and their natural cycle, this is what happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that makes absolute perfect sense. And I think that it's It's also very interesting because when you do get those natural animals like goose or buffalo, like things that are less tampered with because 
chicken, pork, and beef reign supreme. And now Mm -hmm. turkey is a huge one. But when you take away those that like demand for it, and it becomes more of like, oh, this is like a special exotic thing. People tend to not like it because they're like, oh, it's really gamey. Like that's what, (laughs) that's always the term is it's like, oh, it's really gamey. It's like, can you imagine what that chicken would taste like if you let it go and just let it be wild? And obviously like it would have a harder time staying alive. But at the same time, it's like what that flavor profiling would do over time through evolution, like the third or fourth generation of that chicken allowed to run wild would taste 100% differently. Like the flavors that we have now in the meats are manufactured. They're tested and they're chiseled down to this thing that, yeah, the original cow, the original pig, the original chicken does not taste the way that we think it tastes now. And it's funny because when I think about everything they were talking about that was done to the Native Americans in terms of cutting them off from their natural food supply, we've voluntarily done that to ourselves. Yeah. 70s on through factory farming. Well, and it's, I don't know that we've done it to ourselves. I think we've allowed it to happen. That's a better way to put it. Like, yes, we have done it to ourselves, but there's also so much that happens in that environment that we, as a consumer, again, I think it goes back to there is so much research that you would have to do to fully understand labels, the real intention of a, of a stamp that's put on that carton of eggs. What does natural versus organic versus cage-free mean? There's all these things that people are just like, I don't have time. I don't have mm-hmm. this kind of time. And honestly, there's a lot of the times that they're counting on that. They are preying on that fast-paced, uh, overwhelmed consumer. And that is the majority of what we've been since the 70s. The more and more that women go to work, if you're going to get parochial about it, it's there are fewer women who are home making dinner from scratch because they don't have that kind of time. So yeah, that's when preservatives happen. That's when pre-made, that is when like convenience is king. Mm -hmm. And convenient is not, I'm going to do a deep dive on the internet for two hours after I put the kids to bed, after I've worked eight hours today. That's not what you want to do. And I've had moms come to me all the time where they're just asking for me to just point out why and which products. Okay, we typically buy our eggs at Costco. And I'm like, it's not great. And they're like, well, why? I was like, well, you don't want to know why, because (laughs) you'll just stop eating eggs. So if that's not what you're wanting, I can just tell you which brands you should be buying versus that Costco egg. It's going to cost more, but you're getting what you pay for. Yeah, it's important for people to understand that it's not necessarily always about just giving up the thing. I will confess, rewatching Eating Animals this morning, I was like, you know, maybe I should go back to being vegetarian. Like, would that be so bad? And it's not so much about needing to sacrifice the thing. I know a lot of people We'll look at the book title. I mean, and Saffron Foer even talks about this and will say, like, we will make automatic assumptions that this is a screed about vegetarianism, but it's more about just making the ethical choices and about making the decisions about what you are willing to actually put in your body and thinking about that process. Mm -hmm. Yep. And And that's what I tell people, too, is it's like, it is a choice. Every time is a choice. And it doesn't matter if it's buying your Thanksgiving turkey, which is a big decision and a marked decision. Whereas you also have the choice of I'm at home, I'm a little drunk, and I'm going to order Taco Bell. That is just as important of a choice as the Thanksgiving turkey or the ham or which beef you decide to buy for burgers that night. Everyone wants to only have the big choices matter. And yeah. that is not the case, Yeah, which is hard. It's like forming a new habit. And it's really difficult the first couple of days. But once you understand and fully appreciate why you're doing what you're doing and start to see the impact that you're making, not only on potentially smaller businesses, but also for yourself, I think that seeing the effect of it is sometimes a step that people never fully get to. And so they tend to rescind or yeah, in a moment of weakness, it's like, well, this is cheaper. This is easier. I don't have to go to another store. So we're just going to do this, Mm -hmm. which is those are personal choices. And those are things that anyone can judge to anybody else. But yes, the easiest 
one ethically is just stop eating it all together. However, in my opinion, like when I was reading eating animals, I was actually in Japan with my boyfriend, Al, who was filming at the time. And so I was in the, in the van while they were out filming and it was in the Northern coast of Japan, which at the time was freezing. It was like sleeting yeah. rain at the time. It was so cold. And so I was like, I'll just stay in the van and read my book. And every time they would get out and film for 30 minutes and he would come into the van and joke and say, what animals are we not eating now? Because I will have like (laughs) just gotten through the beef section. I'm like, oh my God, we have to stop eating cow. And the next one, he was like, no more pork. I can't eat any more bacon. That's not happening. (laughs) So he was like, okay, great. And he's less of a meat eater than even I am. However, I I think with time has come better perspective. And again, it's not necessarily for me that the choice is to stop eating pork. It's to stop buying pork at the cheap grocery store. Or if I really want a BLT, that BLT is going to be way better if I buy a little eight ounce packet of it from the farmer's market farmer who like could probably tell me the name of the pig that that came from as opposed to buying the much cheaper one and a half pounds on clearance one at my local grocery store. So it's more about the choice Mm -hmm. and which one you go with because it takes a lot more work. It takes a lot more time. And it does take a lot of time. And the, and the other thing that is constantly a thing that I felt myself coming back to is sort of the abdication of responsibility from the USDA in terms of any regulation at all in the fishing industry, in the meat industry, the ag gag orders. Ag gag is a term that refers to the gag orders on any kind of information coming out about the agricultural business, but specifically food agriculture as it pertains to animals mm-hmm. and animal treatment in these processing plants, otherwise known as slaughterhouses. Which I think at the beginning of the USDA, when it was established in like the 1800s, it was meant to be a safeguard for people. Mm-hmm. And I don't, think that it is that anymore. It has become so monopolized, capital-based. It's just a a hierarchy of people getting paid off to either look the other way, know something, but not say something, or to just outright lie. And again, it's those, because the system is that corrupt, they fall on the assumption that the consumer is not going to fact check them or such a small percentage of the consumer's care enough that they're going to be able to not have a loud enough voice for the outcry to be what it should be. And that by putting out confusing labels, they're going to assuage people's consciences. Yeah. In the same way, like McDonald's, I hate them, but they are one of the most brilliant marketing machines our world will probably ever see just simply because they know what people want to see. And even though they're not even delivering you the product that they're advertising to you, they know that you don't have the time, don't have the money, don't have the resources to fact check them. So you just mindlessly consume whatever they give you, which to to have them be such a representative of American culture just is infuriating to me. I, I mean, it is that though, which is also infuriating. Like it is a representation of where we are right now. Yeah. And that boils my blood. It boils mine too. I mean, and it did even when I was a kid, I remember. I mean, my grandfather was actually a poultry farmer in North Dakota. Wow. No joke. And he specialized in the phrenology of chickens because you had to know exactly what the shape of the head of the chicken was. I, I actually never met him but I still have all of the newspaper clippings about what an accomplished phrenologist of chickens he was at the turn of the century. And it's kind of amazing to me to think about how far American agronomics came from that to then my childhood, which was spent between Colorado out in the middle of the ranching wilderness But then also spending time in Australia and Singapore, 
where the only representations of American culture you see are McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And my father wanting to go to McDonald's every morning in Australia. Yep. And it's like, what is this? Yeah. What sense of comfort is that? There's no, uh, it makes, I also, uh, ob- obviously, Omnivore's Dilemma is one of my yeah. absolute favorites. Between Michael Pollan and Jonathan Safran for I'm like, these two are like my little mini gods that I look to all the time for these things. But Michael Pollan is obviously more established in this realm. But he talks about the fast food as being not a comforting thing, because it doesn't bring people together. Like that sort of meal is not one, regardless of what McDonald's wants to tell you, it does. It's just more of a convenience thing. It doesn't resemble anything or taste like anything. And he's like, you obviously, you honestly have to eat it so fast. Because if you really took your time and savored any part of it, you would not be able to have it resemble the thing that it's trying to emulate. When you eat a Big Mac, you're not tasting that meat or that tomato or the cheese or the bun, like none of it tastes like what it's meant to taste like, Mm -hmm. if you really focus on it. And like, if you're doing actual mindful eating, as opposed to mindless eating, forget it. Yeah, I was gonna say, even when I was little, is like, I was a picky eater. But now again, in light of new information, I'm like, I was a discerning eater, because I would refuse to eat McDonald's when we would stop and I could be starving. I was not in a small family, I was fourth of five kids. And my dad's joke was always like, you have to eat fast or you don't eat in our family. And so when we would go through a drive through, it was very few and far between, but I would just straight out refuse it. Even I would sometimes get the salad, but it was never really a full salad. It was always just like sad lettuce. But even then I would like to think that I, I was because I was like, I, I don't taste this thing. I don't enjoy this thing, but Mm -hmm. it was probably just also because I was really picky. I know that from a very early age, I refused any kind of fast food ever. But my parents always thought I was just being a sanctimonious little twerp for (laughs) being vegetarian and not liking fast food. Right. Whatever. Yeah. But it just, again, growing up where I did grow up, which was in the Midwest, we weren't farmers, but like my mom always had a beautiful vegetable garden and we would eat off of that throughout the summer and like starting in through the winter and fall. But we were also a family of hunters and my family still is. My dad would raise turkeys and then release them out into the wild just to basically like continue and propagate that system. Um, And we were like deer hunters. My dad was really big into um, the outdoor life network. He was one of the, the very first sportsman hunters that they actually hired to send out. He was in Colorado quite a bit as well. And he, he did everything from like bear hunting to elk hunting to moose to all of that. And so wow. he knew he knew what it took to track and take down an animal of multiple sizes and strengths and intelligence. And yet he was still that person who did not appreciate the correlation between a farmer raising a cow for the specific need of processing and steak and beef and consumption, like having 10 cows and why that price for that steak was so much higher as opposed to yeah, going to Walmart and buying a pound of ground beef for a dollar. And he just was more of that, you know, it's cheaper, it's more convenient, I'm already here. And it takes a lot more work to buy a half of the side of a cow and break it down ourselves. Although he appreciated why it costs more. Mm -hmm. So it's just those things of just different priorities to different people. And it's so strange that people who have been on the inside of different pieces of this industry have so many vastly different approaches to how they eat. Mm -hmm. It kind of shocks me when I look at a documentary like Eating Animals and I think about, well, how do all of the people in this film choose what they're going to put on their plate? Which would be fascinating to know that. Like, I actually really wish they had taken the time to ask that question. Yeah. But I I love Michael Pollan's work as well. And what I find very unique about his work is that he comes at it from so many different angles. He looks at it in terms of the gardening aspect, as well as the animal husbandry, as well as everything about the diet and the way that diets have evolved. 
He talks about the history. He talks about everything related to the agriculture industry from a very specific point of view in terms of what choices we're making on a daily basis. I find his writing fascinating too. Yeah, he's wonderful. His book, I have it right here, but it's called Food Rules. Mm-hmm. And it's it's one, again, that I give to a lot of people, whoever even ask the questions, because there are definitely people who like do not want to have this conversation. And those aren't people that you're going to affect any sort of even just like interest or because I'm not when people start to dip into this with me, this isn't something that I'm going to tell you what you should be doing, because I realize that everyone's choice in life is going to be different. And again, priorities are going to be very different. Upbringings are going to be different things instilled in you since childhood. But that one is always really good because I mean, he just has straight stay on the outside lanes of the grocery store. Don't eat anything that's handed to you through a car window. Like don't eat cereal that changes the color of your milk. As soon as he says them, you're like, duh, of course. Like why didn't I think to put, he just puts things very succinctly and in a way that it kind of sticks in your brain, which I fully appreciate. And yeah, I I think it, it makes it again, no pun intended, but it's like a more digestible way of thinking about things in a common sense, like in a way that you realize that it's for your own betterment. It's not Mm -hmm. an attack. I'm trying to help you. I think a lot of people perceive any indication that they should be changing their behaviors as an attack. Sure. And I think it's hard not to feel that way. Yeah, especially because people do have attachments to food. I have lots of attachments to food that aren't necessarily the best foods for me. Like I would eat pasta every day, all day, if I was allowed to do that. Not good for me. Even if I homemade that pasta from scratch, it still doesn't contain the things that I should be eating all the time. So there are things that people have these attachments to, again, that could be since childhood, that could be foundational in a way that I can't comprehend. But it's more about you don't need that thing all the time. Like it will mean more to you if you distance yourself from it or eat it less frequently. People cling to those things so tightly that they they don't even want to start that conversation. Yeah, they are so afraid that you're just going to be like, Nope, you can't have that thing ever again. It's like, no, that's not what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> and and when you're working with clients, I mean, how often do you get a lot of pushback? Mine is more of like, I call it more of like a boutique catering company or, and now it's meal prep since COVID, but I'm very forthright with people as to why I give them like cost breakdowns. So if people send me, I've had people who want to do catering for a wedding and they're like, my budget is... $10 a person. And I want, I want a prime rib station. I want lobster. I want this. I want that. And I'm like, well, that's not going to be possible with me. And they're like, well, if I go to this other catering company, they're going to do it. I'm like, well, then you should go work with them because this is how I source the protein, especially. And it's not cheap. It's not something that I, again, I don't walk into a Costco and I don't walk into a Walmart and fill a cart. That's not how I run my business. So yeah, I lose clients, but it's not, I am not going to put money in the pockets of people of those big companies when I could be getting better product. Yes, more expensive, but you show respect to the amount of time and effort that the smaller guy put into raising that pig or that cow or what have you. And to some people, again, that food is there because it has to be there. It's there to keep people from getting too drunk in my wedding. It's not there to have a beautiful meal with people who are important to me. So again, those are choices that people make. They just go to someone else if that's not something that is there. Like if our priorities aren't aligned, I'm like, well, this isn't going to work no matter what. And I really want to hear though about your work with people who are doing the proper animal husbandry and I want to know what you can share about what you've seen in those farms. I mean, you just see people trying to do something that they kind of have to remind themselves every day why they do it. Like, I think that that has been the overwhelming sentiment with the farmers, regardless of what they're raising or producing um, or how much money they're making or not making. It's like they're constantly on this teetering hill of, am I insane? Like, what am I doing 
Am I making a big enough difference? Is what I'm doing important enough to put myself through this level of anxiety, frustration, poverty, for the most part, like I just got back from um, Portland. And while I was in Portland, I was really lucky. And I was able to go to two farms that I have been an Instagram stalker of for a really long time. And that's honestly one of the things that I love to do when I travel is like, look at my Instagram accounts for the farms that I follow and see if any of them are able for me to come and bug them for an hour or two. There was one in particular that it's called Terra Farms just outside of Portland, which I fell in love with the concept of Portland simply because they, it feels like a big enough city, but it feel it's not as sprawling as LA is. And it, they had this mandate that they put in when they first started building that city that the city could not extend past a certain point. So it's not able to just continuously keep sprawling out and breaking up the natural beauty that it has surrounding it. So you have a farm that was within eight miles of Portland. Yeah, I was fully expecting to be like, okay, I got to get up at, you know, five in the morning so that I can drive an hour and a half to get to this place. And you put it in Google Maps. And it's like, it's a 20 minute drive. And I was like, what? And I was in the heartland of Portland, like in the very middle of Portland where I was staying. But I went out there and it's, it's just run by this couple who when they started doing it, they had no one, they were both vegetarian. And they've been doing it, I think, for over 20 years now. But when they first started, I had that conversation with the main farmer. And he he was like, yeah, we we kind of fell into it. We had no expectation. We were, like he said, vegetarian to start. They were just going to do like vegetable production. And then realized that the land that they had, it was very rolling hills, was not conducive to that. And he had a friend who had a bunch of chickens. And they had like five or six chickens and one rooster and they needed to get rid of them. So he basically gave them to him. And so he's like, we started with five chickens and one very mean rooster. And then from there, they now have, they just got sheep, lambs, and they also have, they have the most diverse protein CSA box in the Pacific Northwest. If I remember that correctly, they have over eight different proteins that they're able to provide, which is overwhelmed. Like I, I have never seen that, but they have cows, sheep, lamb, they do turkey, they have ducks, uh, they have goats, trying to remember all of them now, but they chickens, and they have rabbit. And it was just those things where he's like, again, trying to feed the flow of that ecosystem. So they they move the chicken and the turkey through the pasture, the goats go in and clean up everything that's left, the cows are there and They do raw milk, eggs, obviously, and then they do their own butchery and production when it comes down to that time. And he has every animal with a personal connection to it. And it has a history and a story that is just a line that he can draw from himself to that animal. And it honestly felt, but he's, that's not even his only source of income. From all of that, he still has to work a job. And then he does that quote unquote, in his free time, it's not an easy existence. And it was, but he's very passionate about it. And I sat and chatted with him just about how he feels about the, like, the economic impact, and the agricultural impact of plant based foods, as opposed to eating the protein. And how he phrases it is the same as how I've kind of always believed that he's like, the energy that is required to put back into the earth that is not, you're not going to be able to do that with plant-based foods. And they've done studies on that and uh, like bigger plant-based foods, like the, I think it was beyond asked and paid for those studies to be done so that they could put, you know, that stamp on their things. But the unfortunate thing is they're not looking at the agricultural impact of someone like Terra farms. They are looking at the agricultural impact of someone like a Tyson or like the bigger factory farm things, Mm -hmm. which obviously they're not putting anything back into the soil. They look great compared to a huge conglomeration. But what he does is kind of the like Zed approach where he's like, I make the impact that I make. I make the choices that I feel are important to me and to my community. And I will do that until it's no longer possible to do that. That's kind of just always been the approach for any of the farms or farmers that I've met and been a part of is 
they they find what they do to be incredibly important and regardless of if that's important to other people but there are those core people who that's very important and they're going to drive all the way out to his farm just to go pick up a couple gallons of raw milk because they know the care and attention that is given to that milk and to that cow. And when you think about the fact that only 1% of farms are doing this kind of work, you know, mm-hmm. 99% is owned by your big companies like Tyson's and Purdue and the like. How do you think these farms are able to make it, especially in the pandemic? Do you have any sense of how that's hit people in this industry? I think that for some people that it will be a positive thing for those independent farms simply because it has, like you noted earlier, in that it's it's made people appreciate how quickly and fragile, even like these huge companies, how quickly they can just go away. I was really happy to see that just simply because yeah, when you hear a stat, like they're 1% of the farmers and it's like, okay, well, they're never, ever going to be something that can be built back up to a common everyday thing. Like I'm never going to see his duck at a supermarket that I would shop at, but that isn't the case. Like their ecosystem is one that is solid and it's able to continue to function in something even as drastic as a pandemic. Whereas those bigger companies are built on such a fragile foundation that you take away like one piece of that Jenga tower and they just immediately start wobbling. It does come down to the consumer if those smaller independent farms are going to continue to exist. The only way that they will continue to exist is if people buy their products. And the only way that people are going to buy their products is if they care enough to A, even know that they exist and B, care that the reason that they're paying more money is because they care about where their food comes from. It's kind of interesting for me as someone who doesn't typically do a lot of food preparation. Like to be very honest, I'm very mm-hmm. much a convenience person, but I made the decision a while ago that that didn't mean that I had to constantly be eating frozen foods. So I found a meal preparation service that was willing to tell me where it was sourcing foods and so forth. You know, so they deliver me my foods for the week, basically, packaged on Sundays. And and there are risks with that, too. And I don't know everything, but... But you're making the the effort. I'm making some degree of effort, not... The whole degree of effort. You're making a lot of effort. <laughs> like even even for most people, you are making a huge effort comparatively. Yeah, it got to the point where I was just eating like Trader Joe's frozen foods all the time. And I was so disgusted with myself. And I was like, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And, <laughs> and I deserve to have a home-cooked meal, whether I am physically well enough to make it or not. I just did the research to find a place that was willing to make something good and decent and relatively ethically sourced. But I would like the ability to reach out to other places as well. But regardless of what you are I I always feel, though, like there are more options than people know about necessarily in their area. Yeah. And that it's not really until you do the research that you know what's even out there. Doing the research is something that most people are never, ever going to get around to. And at the core of that, for most that I, as far as in my experience, has, again, it bleeds back to that fear that something is going to be that they're going to learn something about a brand that they go to all the time that they don't want to know. And it's going to then just be like, great, this is one more thing that that is lying to me or that it's something that I put my trust in. Because even the brands that you you do the research for, you figure it out and you're like, great, this is the one I can rely on this. This is a trustworthy thing. In a year, that could be a fair depends on how popular that brand got. It depends on how many people started buying those eggs or that chicken. It could have influenced them. It, they had to get bigger, which means like some of the standards probably dipped or potentially dipped. And it's just, 
you, you have to continuously go back and check on things, which is, again, it's a lot of work. It should be a system that we can rely on that brand to be consistent. And you can't. No. You just can't. And it, I think that it does. It boils down to people just not wanting to have to deal with that because it's, it's another thing. And as we've learned in this decade of a year that we've just all lived through is it's, we don't like, we can only take so much. And when everything else is crumbling around you, it's not like, but where did the chicken come from is not a priority for most people. There's even like that Portlandia episode. I don't know if you watch it, but they do this whole bit on this hipster couple, like being at a farm oh, yeah. market yeah. restaurant. And, and tell me the story right. of this chicken. Right. Do you have a little bio card? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's cute. And then they like go to the farm itself. And it's like, that is almost the amount of effort that is required to make sure that what people are saying is accurate. It's so shocking that that is the level that is required. Yeah. Well, it's even in eating animals. Yeah. He reaches out to all of those Every company that, you know, especially the ones that are like family farm, look at this pastoral landscape in which we grew these, this milk or this, these eggs or whatever. And those people are just like, no, you're not allowed to come and see. It's like, why not? Why are we not allowed to come and see where you're making the thing? And transparency is always my number one. Yeah. Because if you're not going to let me see behind the wizard curtain, then I have no interest in eating what's just like going to get shoved out in a styrofoam container on the other side. No, thank you. And the majority of those big factory farms are you're not allowed anywhere near them. Like mm-hmm. they don't even allow drones to fly over the top, which is insane. Watching the telling off in the documentary was quite yeah. telling. But what steps can people take to find out about ethically sourced food sources near them? I think it's becoming all the time more accessible because I think that there are people who will do that legwork for you. Again, if it's something that you will ask questions and you will start that conversation or just do the Google search. Even before I did this, I was like, I'm just going to see how easy this is. And all you have to do is just Google, what is the best milk that I should be buying at the grocery store? What are the best eggs I should be buying? What brand is the most transparent? And there are loads of websites, companies, independent people who want to have that who want you to have that information. You don't have to dig, you don't have to get a dictionary out or like fall down a rabbit hole of scary images. I think that's another thing that people get really scared about is they think it's going to be like a PETA documentary that's going to get thrown on them. And that's not the case. People who are wanting you to have the good information. Two of my favorite are this one called Momovation. And it's, it was started by a mother. Again, it's like these people who want the best for their children, but they break it down in a very easy and comprehensible fashion as far as just like, here's a list. These are the reasons these didn't make the list. These are, you know, what these labels mean. This is like what the, whatever it's RHBGH hormone in milk is, why you shouldn't want that in your milk what it will do to the human body, like, again, not to be scary, just to inform them. And then Modern Farmer is both a magazine that you can get as well as a website. And they're fantastic as well. They do get a little bit more into scientific journals, and a more in depth research of things if that's something that you want to do. But the Momovation one even is just like, here are pictures of the cartons of milk that are the best. And if you want to further read into that, then you can do that. But it's one that you can trust them. You can trust that it's people who have your best interests at heart. And you can just be like, okay, which is the number one? Great. I have seen that label before. That's the one that I'm going to pick up from now on. And it's more about changing where you shop, maybe, or changing how much money that shop is going to cost you or changing how often you get to have that thing. Yeah, I've definitely changed a lot about how I consume just in the pandemic naturally. Mm -hmm. And I feel like some of that happened automatically when meat wasn't readily available. But some of it also just happened because I found myself for a good long while there actually eating staples rather than the more processed foods. Mm -hmm. 
I just found that I was okay with making soups and things like that. What a miracle, right? Yeah. Well, I think the most asked one was definitely like beans and legumes that people, I would just get frantic text messages or pictures of something and just be like, what do I do with this? What is this? <laughs> what? This was the last thing on the shelf at Trader Joe's and I have no idea what this is. And so it's just like, it's okay. It's going to be all right. That's the <laughs> thing that you have. Okay. Just yeah. throw it in a crock pot. It'll exactly. be all right. <laughs> yeah. I remember one of the first cook, well, not one of the first cooking jobs, but I, one of the most impactful guys that I worked for in a restaurant. And he was always just like, rule of thumb with any bean or grain. He's like, just boil the shit out of it until you taste it. And you're like, yep, this is edible. He's like, it's not hard. You just throw water and salt into a pot and throw it in until it's done. I always just am like, don't get freaked out. You don't have to have the this exact like fractural fractional math problem worked out in order to make sure that your kidney beans don't get overcooked. Set a timer for 30 minutes, check them, and then keep checking them. It's a problem that extends out to a lot of other potentially smaller problems. The fact that some people don't care about where their meat comes from is because they don't know how to cook it anyway. They're not going to spend $50 on a steak if they could potentially screw up that steak while they're cooking it. But I think that, again, it's exciting to have something new and something that I think that that's a form of respect because you you paid a lot of money for it. And so you're like, I don't want to mess it up. So you put extra effort into it. Bringing that back to a convenience thing of, yeah, but I could just go to Cheesecake Factory and get a steak for $10 and it comes with sides and potentially a piece of cake. Why wouldn't I do that? And I'm like, yeah, but think of the difference in what that steak is going to taste like for you. And you lose that respect. It's now just a mindless eating. It comes back to all of the health issues as well, because you're impacting not just your own personal health by eating that $10 steak, you're contributing Mm -hmm. to a system that contributes to climate change, pollution, problems with water quality, disease, Even watching that 2017 documentary, Eating Animals, they talk about it's not a question of will there be the next pandemic, but when the next pandemic will come. And that's a little chilling in light of current situations. I mean, obviously, it didn't come from pigs or birds, but nonetheless, here we are. It came from improper animal husbandry. Exactly. There was a flaw in the ecosystem. And that is where it came from. Yeah, it comes from those open air markets. I was in Japan. And it's exciting to be in even in some of those fish markets. But it's also very harrowing Mm -hmm. when you have to sit there and think like, what do they do with that giant tuna that isn't getting bought today? Like that is no longer sashimi grade. It's like it then trickles down further into a system that just like gets murkier and murkier the deeper that you go. And yeah, just having things open to the air. It's just, it's, there's a, there's a reason why you no longer have those like big butcher shop things where like just big whole sides of beef are just hanging there open. There's a reason why things are broken down and processed the way that they are as quickly as they are to Mm -hmm. be refrigerated, frozen, sold in a matter of two days what have you, just the way that we treat food has evolved. And in some ways, very much devolves to the point that we are no longer afforded that relation to what particular animal that used to be, like nothing has a face anymore. I even used to I used to be a lunch lady at a school that was a farm to school company that I worked for. And I loved it because the kids, I got to make these menus, we had a theme every month, we even had a bison month. And so we would do everything with bison. It was so cool. And I remember we did, I think I did like roast chicken one week and it was like on the bone roast chicken. And the, the kids had zero idea of what animal it was. They were like, I have never had chicken like this before. This isn't the chicken that I'm used to. And it just, <sighs> even in a school that teaches cooking classes that has a garden that tries its hardest to instill what it can instill. It, it, the foundation is home. The foundation is what your parents are choosing to expose you to and what they have time to expose you to, which that's another responsibility of parenthood. But 
unfortunately in our world as it stands currently there is so much poverty around the world some of which is very i don't know i i don't want to get into the messiness of trying to make claims here that i don't have the statistical data to prove but i really do genuinely feel that there is a huge amount of poverty in this country that is a part of the same disease that allows corporations like Tyson's and Purdue and factory farming to flourish. Mm -hmm. And so it's this endless cycle that continues to make those who live in poverty more and more sick and more and more poor and in debt. Yeah, they can afford the drive-through lane, but they can't afford the hospital bill that happens because of the drive-through lane. Right. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a system and a government that is not looking out ultimately for its people's welfare. It is looking out for its own financial gain. And that's why I said earlier that to me, I have no trust anymore in the USDA because it is constantly lying. It lies because it wouldn't be sustainable to the corporations if it told the truth. Mm-hmm. If it was as, again, transparency, there's, yeah. there's none of it. Absolutely none. We shouldn't have to be going to different websites or having a list of brands that we trust. Like that was the entire reason the USDA was instituted in the first place was to keep us from companies that wished to skirt the edges and to bend the rules and to just pass things. And we've given them the power. And like you said, we feed into that economy every time we make the choice to go for the cheap item. Mm hmm. And it's heartbreaking because I I have friends who I know physically cannot afford to make the ethical decision because their grocery bill just is going to be out of control if they are sourcing everything completely ethically. But at the same time, it's killing everyone. But even the smallest choices start to have a bigger impact. And I think even for the people who cannot afford, obviously, to go and buy the $10 pack of half of a pound pack of bacon that came ethically sourced, you then can make the decision that, yes, I will buy the cheaper bacon, but I will only be having bacon once a week, as Mm -hmm. opposed to us having it three times a week or every morning for breakfast. And therefore, we're buying more and more you just start to appreciate it again more. And that's what I was even saying earlier is it's like, even if you knocked out McDonald's, unless it really, if it is a special occasion food for you or a comfort food, and then it will start to mean more to you mm-hmm. and it will have less of an impact on you health wise. And you'll just, yeah, it's even the convenience factor is something that you take for granted. And I'm not without saying that like, I've never gone to In-N-Out. However, when I do go to In-N-Out, which is like three times in the entire 10 years that I've lived in LA, I really appreciate it when I go through it. And I'm like, I marvel at the insanity that is that company that it's like, you guys make five things and yet you have a line of cars two blocks around this building. But to me, it would lose that. I I wouldn't understand the concept of that if I went there every week or Mm -hmm. more often. So yeah, even for people who who cannot afford it all the time, just maybe cut back. Yeah, even one small choice it makes a difference. Even eating plant based one day a week will make a difference, and it's cheaper to eat plant based. Oh, for well. sure. And then to really appreciate the value of things, I think mm-hmm. is really yep. wonderful. Yeah, I, I worked at a butcher shop in Colorado for a while, and. We had one guy, I always remember he would come in and he would, he'd only come in once a week and he'd say, my wife will tell me that I can either get steak five nights a week from the grocery store, or I can have one of your guys' steaks. And he's like, I always just come in and get one steak from here. And that's my steak for the week. And he was so excited about it every time he would come in. (laughs) And I think that that's the difference, like putting that money aside that you would spend on the cheaper option and putting it towards something of higher quality. But again, not everyone has that ability to make those choices. And I appreciate that. But I think that there are ways that you have your own impact. Yeah. Katie, 
I want to thank you so much for this conversation. This was it's, really wonderful. This has honestly been so great. It's a fun outlet for me to actually be able to talk and not have people feel like I'm attacking them or denying them. No, like. no. It's wonderful because you you are clearly so passionate and so well-educated about all of the aspects of this industry. Really, the the farm-to-table Industry as a whole is something that I think everyone needs to be more aware of. And also thinking about the ethical considerations of food is obviously something that I think should be at the forefront of everyone's mind. It's literally the energy that you put into your body and you need your body to work as long as it possibly can. So you should put the best fuel in it that you could possibly can put in it. Yeah, exactly. In the words of Michael Pollan, you got to pay more and eat less. Thank you so very much. Thank you. It's been wonderful. I really loved it. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our editor, William Das. Join us next time as November continues. But right now, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Podchaser. It helps us grow our audience and improve the show. You can also help us out by following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, where we are at Omnibus Ride. Be safe, be well, and do good work. See you next time you catch a ride on the Omnibus. Omnibus.